want to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 19 this morning in just a moment. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19, Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. And so receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the way in which you have a plan for each one of us. And Lord, in our obedience, our willingness in responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, you've called us to be Timothys and to be Epaphroditus's. You've called us to have a loving concern and a selfless action towards one another. And so, Lord, today will you use the testimony of the Apostle Paul about these two men to speak to our hearts and lives, not because the Apostle Paul necessarily wrote it or because of even their story, but because your word never returns void, and because the power of the Holy Spirit is with us any time that we're involved in your word, that your presence here now is even with us. So, Lord, in a passage that is some ways an, an in-between passage, would you help us to recognize that it has much to say to us? Would you speak as only you can to our hearts and lives in Jesus' name? Amen. Uh, there was a man named Robert Cunningham who had a favorite pizza restaurant in New York back in the 1980s. Robert Cunningham uh, went to a place called Sal's Pizzeria that was somewhere in New York City. And on March 29th, 1984, he had gone there uh, for some lunch that day, and that day he was having linguine and clam sauce when a waitress that he knew pretty well uh, waited on him and his friend. As he got to the end of the meal, he found himself a little short on cash. He had enough to pay for the meal, but he found out he didn't have a, enough to leave the kind of tip that he would want to. And so he asked the waitress, uh, would you like for me to leave you what I've got as a tip, or would you like to... Uh, to sort of go in with me, if we, if we win the lottery together, I'll give you half of whatever the ticket comes up as. And so she, sort of being, you know, lighthearted and otherwise, just said, well, how about I'll just split the, the lottery ticket with you? Now, 
I'm not here supporting the lottery today or speaking for it in any way. I'm just telling you a story. But have you ever asked the question of yourself, what would I do if I won the lottery? What would I do with an extra few million dollars lying around? What would my life look like? How would it be different? How would I shape you know, my world if all of a sudden uh, I hit it big and a lot of money that I didn't earn had come into my possession? Well, after the meal, this lady named Phyllis helped Robert uh, to pick out the lottery numbers for that day, and they sort of went along with their life. As they got to the end of that week, uh, all of a sudden, on Saturday night, Cunningham realized that he had won, and the jackpot was $6 million, which in 1984 was like $20 billion. That was a, no, I'm just kidding. Not quite that much. But $6 million went a lot farther even in 1984. Some of you would like to say, well, I'll see how far $6 million would go even in 2023. But $6 million richer, richer uh, Robert had a, a choice to make. Was he going to honor the promise that he had made with the lottery ticket that was only in his name and leave a tip of $3 million to his waitress friend? Or was he just going to find another pizzeria in New York City and call it a day? We've got a picture this morning. This is Robert and Phyllis standing with another man after uh, realizing their lottery winnings, and Richard made the choice, excuse me, Robert made the choice to keep the friendship and to give half the money to his waitress to whom he had made that promise. When he was asked about this, Cunningham, who was a police sergeant, a husband, a father of four, grandfather of three, said, I won't back out of my promise. Besides, Friendship means more than money. So for $3 million, he kept a promise and probably had a lifelong friend in Miss Phyllis from that time forward. I want to speak to you today on the topic of this, Christians are mobilized friends. Christians are mobilized friends. We read a, a sort of in-between passage today where sometimes when we come through a, a letter uh, we'll find different ways that we say, well, this might be sort of the in-between. It's not teaching us as much as the others would, but I would challenge each one of us to think that perhaps the practical reality of how these men were living out the Apostle Paul's discipleship and ministry should be really powerful to us, that Christians are mobilized friends. We're never called simply to be friends that are only friends, and the friendships don't lead anywhere or go anywhere. No, the Bible talks uh, about us in relationship with one another, that we should be like iron that sharpens iron, that we are people who are working and bearing one another's burdens together in life, that friendship with a direction, a mobilization is what God has designed to bless. Jesus himself took 12 friends, and throughout those time in his ministry, he invested and labored with them. He had to shake his head a few times, perhaps some of the decisions and the things that they would say, but his friendship made a powerful investment in their life, even in the midst of the ministry and the mobilization that was taking place as a part of that as well. And so the Apostle Paul speaks about two men in our passage this morning, Timothy and Epaphroditus. We'll come to them in just a moment. And much like as Pastor Brandon uh, was leading us through uh, Second and Third John, and we saw men like Demetrius and others uh, that are commended. Today we come to two people and we find out some commendation on them as well. What it means to be faithful and to live faithful. 
And I'd invite each one of us, myself included, to be challenged today by what's said about these two men and for what that means not only in our own lives, but for how we will appreciate and be thankful to those folks if we're not careful, we miss and we, we sort of fail to see just how much of an impact they've had on our own lives, uh, on our own walks with the Lord. And so we come today to a topic of friendship and the nature of two men who were faithful. And, and I want to say a few things sort of even to set up the two points that I've got today. As we look at this, I think there's some overarching thoughts that it's helpful to see for us. So I want to go through a few of those this morning. The, the first is this, is that as Paul's writing, he's got a long-term and a short-term direction or plan that he recognizes as being set forth. That he's not simply looking to the distant future, and at the same time, he's not only looking to the immediate present. He's weighing both of those things. And so you'll see as he speaks about Timothy and he speaks about Epaphroditus, he is recognizing that there's a short-term and there's a long-term plan for what's going to take place. And I think in our lives, we're also called not only to have long-term planning and short-term planning and think about those kind of things. Some of us in here may be better than others at really planning ahead. Uh, some of you are in here and say, well, I don't even know what I'm having for lunch today. I've not gone any further than being in here right now. But having a long-term vision and a short-term vision as well, as well as considering even in relationships what that looks like. And the second is this, that there's a balance of our hopes and God's will. You'll see the Apostle Paul speak to his own hope, but you'll see him ultimately even more so speak about the will of the Lord. Now, it's right for us, I'm thankful, to have hopes if we believed that the sovereignty of God made us simply have to drift through life, never making plans, never having hopes, never having ambition, that would be a sad state of affairs for us. The sovereignty, the control, the, the will and the rule of God doesn't mean in our own lives that we just sit back and see what happens. But it instead is the great uh, boundary fence where we recognize that as we move and seek to follow the Lord, God's going to take care of those things that we can't see and we can't anticipate. We won't always understand the moves that he makes and the directions that our life takes, but we recognize that God's plans are better than our plans. And so when we pray and when we seek the Lord, we don't ultimately seek our own hopes because we don't always know what we need. We don't always know what's best. We don't always know the right time, and we don't see things the way that God sees them. And so it's a great blessing for us to recognize that in our hopes, our hopes do not, uh, do not trump God's will, that God's will is what's most important. James would say that if we're going to make plans, if we're going to you know, move forward, that we want to be people who recognize that Lord willing, we're going to do this. If the Lord wills, that it's up to Him. And so when we're praying for our friends, we're praying for our neighbors and our family members. We're able to rest in that great truth that God's will is better than our own. Do you remember when Jesus, in teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, who of you, if you had you know, a son that asked him for bread, you'd give him a stone or you'd give him a serpent? That, that fathers know how to give good things to their children, and even more so does your heavenly father know how to give good things to his children? That God knows better than we know? 
I think about Psalm, I believe it's 131, that says, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child as its mother uh, is my soul within me. Like a weaned child at its mother is my soul within me. That we are like children who have no idea of the larger scheme of things. We're so little, the best we can do is just climb up in our Father's lap and trust Him because He knows exactly what we need. And so our hopes and our ambitions are good, but... God's will is working even through those. Paul is going to balance both of those. We're going to see, number three, a need to send and a need to stay. A need to send and a need to stay. In church life, sometimes we think what's best is always to send. Well, if, if we can just, you know, we just need to keep moving people or need this or that. There's, there's mission fields here and there, and all of those are right and good, that we need to be people who are involved in the mission of God around the world. And yet at the same time, we come to words like we see in Mark's gospel where Jesus uh, is, is healing the demoniac, this man who had all sorts of, of demons that were plaguing him. He was running through the cemetery. Uh, he wasn't wearing any clothes. He was cutting himself. It was a bad deal. And he's delivered from these demons. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Do you remember what Jesus told him? Stay home. Tell what God has done in your life. Sometimes the mission field that God has called us to is right where we are. And so if we have this mindset to say, well, someday I'll serve the Lord when I'm sent here or sent there or when I'm not, no longer in this situation and I'm someday in that other situation, no, there's a balance there of staying and sending. Paul's going to talk about uh, not only that his love for Timothy and Epaphroditus, that doesn't mean he's only going to keep them and it doesn't mean he's only going to send them. As he recognizes God's will and God's mission, it doesn't mean he's only going to keep them or he's only going to send them. There's a balance of both of those things. In our lives, there's times to move and there's times to stay. There's times to act and there's times to be patient. There's a balance of each of those things. Number four, we're going to see in Paul's words, especially lived out in Timothy and in Epaphroditus, there's a love for people and there's a faithfulness to the work. There's a love for people and there's a faithfulness to the work. You've probably known some people, perhaps in your life, that they had a great love for people, or, or maybe for us, each of us are on that pendulum somewhere as you're in here this morning. You might even think, well, I have an easier time loving people than I do you know, whatever work I'm called to and, and in service there. There's others of you who say, I can work all day long, it's the people who get in my way. So wherever you find yourselves on that spectrum, we see the call of God in Timothy and Epaphroditus' life lived out as both a love for people and a faithfulness to the work, and not simply one or the other. Lastly, we see a fragility of life. I think that's a word, and the urgency of discipleship. Paul recognizes at times that his time might be short. And so he is thinking through things in such a way to recognize that, that it, it, there's an urgent need and, and the pieces that are moving are not pieces that are moving to say, well, I must have 30, 40, 50 more years. What if this is the last week of my life, the last month of my life, the last year of my life? There's an urgency of discipleship. We're sometimes guilty in a world where modern medicine and, and so many uh, conveniences of our life makes us sort of have the delusion that we'll be here forever. That if anything's going to change, it doesn't need to change for perhaps some years down the road. I've got plenty of time, whatever that might be. But there's an urgent planning taking place in the Apostle Paul's heart and life that I think we need to hear as well, to realize the urgency 
of the need for the gospel, the urgency for those around us who may not be in our circles forever, the urgency of the call to recognize the need for those in our lives to know Christ and at the same time that we don't have forever to accomplish that need, the fragility of life and the urgency of discipleship at the same time. And so I've got two things for you this morning uh, before we go today. Number one is this, Timothy's value is described in his selfless concern and his loving faithfulness. Timothy's character, Timothy's value is described in his selfless concern and loving faithfulness. To read verse 19 through 24 again, this is what Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy is a third generation believer which is saying something in the early 60s AD, that Timothy's grandmother, we're told in Acts 16, as well as his mother were believers. We're told that his father is Greek, but as far as I'm aware, we are not told that his father ever placed faith in Christ. We don't know whether he became a believer at some point. But his grandmother and his mother both had a solid faith, very good relationship to the song that was sang just a moment ago. The solid faith of that grandmother and that mother had a huge impact on Timothy. And when Timothy came to faith in Christ, uh, he came to faith in such a way that he became involved uh, in ministry selflessly and with a concern for other people. Timothy's name means one who honors God or one who reveres God. It's a Greek name. But the the two sort of words that are put together for that name, uh, you can tell that his mother at least had a desire that he would be one who grew up to honor the Lord, and he did. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. How sad of a thing is it for Paul to say, of all the people I'm discipling, he's the only guy who's going to genuinely be concerned about you. He might be the only one who genuinely cares. Now, he, he mentions, you know, others as well. He obviously is going to go on to mention Epaphroditus and say good things about him. But there's this way in which Timothy is someone who's going to love the Philippian church in a unique way and that they've felt before and that they've known before. And as Paul's talked earlier about some of these other guys who are using Paul's imprisonment to advance their own careers and their own ministries by climbing over him, he says, you know, some of these others, they're, they're sort of out for other ambition, but Timothy, on the other hand, is going to be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You know, if we're seeking for great spiritual things to be accomplished in the lives of people and we're not willing to have genuine concern and affection and love for them, we're probably not going to get very far. Amen. And so Timothy's ministry was powerful in part because of his love and his concern for other people. The word that's used within this uh, paragraph that we just read is a word that Paul used earlier in this passage that literally means like-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, that 
that Timothy's soul, his, his inner uh, motivation was entwined with Paul's in such a way that for Paul to send Timothy, it's like a father sending his son. It's about as close as you can get, the connection that's there. Timothy's value is described in his selfless concern and his loving faithfulness. He has a concern for, welfare, for their welfare. Verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. We're told at the beginning of this letter that Timothy is part of, he is writing this letter with Paul. And so the two of them working on this together, Timothy perhaps is imprisoned himself or perhaps is able to visit Paul at certain times and uh, himself not being in prison. We're not told fully uh, what that may be, but Paul is obviously not able to send Timothy at this moment and he's trusting for what the Lord will accomplish. But for right now, he knows Timothy's urgent need is to remain with him and eventually to go and to be with him. But he is going to send someone else. Now, in your elementary school classrooms, you probably had a Timothy or maybe two. Uh, this morning in this room, there's probably a Timothy or two or five or ten. I doubt there's any Epaphroditus here. I doubt you had any in your elementary school class, probably because it was too many letters to spell or perhaps didn't roll off the tongue quite as easy as Timothy uh, the word Timothy does, or the name Timothy, but nevertheless, this is also an important uh, character and someone who's spoken very well of by the Apostle Paul. And so, as we've looked at Timothy, the second thing I'd say today as we look at this man, Epaphroditus, is this. Epaphroditus' willing sacrifice is a great testimony. Epaphroditus' willing sacrifice is a great testimony. I think every week I've shared with you about things that intrigue me that I never am interested in doing myself. I talked about hang gliding, I talked about rock climbing. Another thing that intrigues me is uh, the, the greater north, Alaska, you know, those areas of Canada where hardly anybody lives, where it's just snow and ice and moose, and that's all you get, you know. I just think there's something so fascinating about that. Um, I'm not quite ready to live there uh, myself, but I do like watching it on TV. There's nothing better than watching people who are, you know, scraping out a living there in the northern reaches while I've got a bag of Cheetos on my chest and sort of the balance of those two things. But you've got, uh, to mention that, there is a purpose here. About a hundred years ago, or a little bit less, there was a village in northern Alaska that was a good ways away from everything else, and they had an outbreak of diphtheria, a disease that doesn't occur nearly as often now as it did uh, 100 years ago and, and more. And so as a six-year-old named Richard Stanley showed symptoms of diphtheria, this uh, signaled the possibility of an outbreak uh, in the small town of a place called Nome. The boy passed away a day later, later, and Dr. Curtis Welch, who was there, began immunizing children and adults with an experimental but effective anti-diphtheria serum. It wasn't long before Dr. Welch's supply ran out, and the nearest serum was about a thousand miles of frozen Alaska wilderness away. Now, if you want to sort of equate that in your mind, from the best I can tell, a thousand miles from Green Street Baptist Church this morning is somewhere near Wichita, Kansas. And so a thousand miles away with no roads and no ways to get there, 
Amazingly, a group of trappers and prospectors volunteered to cover the distance with their dog teams. And operating in relays from trading post to trapping station and beyond, one sled started out from Nome while another carrying the serum started out from the place 1,000 miles away. Oblivious to frostbite, fatigue, and exhaustion, the Teamsters mushed, but you don't know that word, that's what you call out to the dogs to keep them going, relentlessly until 144 hours later, in minus 50 degree winds, the serum was delivered. And as a result, only one other life was lost to the potential epidemic. Their sacrifice had given an entire town the gift of life. Likewise, Paul is going to say here that Epaphroditus' arrival and ministry to him had made all of the difference. And in that way, it was a, it was a great benefit to him. Verse 25, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have, to, uh, have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus took on the risk of traveling to the Apostle Paul to take to him perhaps financial resources or, or other resources for him to be able to continue and to survive in ministry. And Epaphroditus did that at great risk to himself. It was often in the ancient world, even though they didn't understand germs and, and the things that we know now about disease, they knew when, the further away you got from home, the more likely you were to grow ill by things that seemed to be in one area that weren't in another. If you read a book written in the 1800s or before, all the way up to that time, it was fairly common for people to come down with a kind of sickness where they may be in the bed two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, they've got a fever, they're not sure if they're going to live, and it's going to go one way or the other. And in this time period, we see the same thing, that Epaphroditus falls ill, we're not told exactly with what, but his life was in the balance. He traveled to the Apostle Paul, which was also a quite risky thing. Even later, in the 1800s, some of the missionaries that we celebrate in our own tradition, Adoniram Judson, Lottie Moon, those are two that almost never made it to the mission field because their boats almost sank on the way there. If you were to go to the airport today and as you got onto the gate, the gate attendant said, you got a seven out of 10 chance. We're feeling pretty good today. Go ahead and climb on board. You'd probably say, I think I might drive or wait or do something else. It was a risky thing to travel. It was a risky thing to be somewhere other than where you were. And sure enough, it almost cost Epaphroditus his life. Now, more than likely, this is not the same person that is mentioned in Colossians and Philemon named Epaphras. These are two different individuals, and so we know not nearly as much about this man, Epaphroditus, but the commendation he gets here uh, is a great testimony about him. Epaphroditus' willing sacrifice is a great testimony. Even Jesus said this, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And for the ministry that the Apostle Paul was involved in, Epaphroditus thought it worth perhaps even his life to make sure that Paul and Timothy and others had the means by which they could keep going. 
Paul seems even more fearful of losing Epaphroditus than he was of losing uh, his own life. But there's a bond that's there between them, and there's a bond that the Apostle Paul knows even more strongly to the Philippian church based on Epaphroditus' faithfulness to him. I think it's interesting in verse 28, Paul says, I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. As the letter goes on, you'll see Paul say, do not be anxious about anything. And yet at the same time, his concern for Epaphroditus was such that he experienced anxiety himself. You're here today and you're dealing with anxiety of some kind. Recognize that it's something that believers can walk through and that God's calling us to trust him in. But even the Apostle Paul dealt with anxious uh, emotions for somebody that he loved and circumstances that he wasn't sure how it would turn out. He says to the Philippian church, God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, and I'm the more eager to send him that you may rejoice at seeing him again. It was a time in the world as well that when somebody went off, you weren't sure if they were ever going to come back. What it would be like saying goodbye to that person who's going to go on a traveling trip and you sort of have that weight of, I sure hope I see you again. So Paul calls on the Philippian church to rejoice when he comes back, for it to be a celebration when he returns. I have a memory of being a fifth grade boy sitting in the basement at our old house and watching the 1992 NBA Finals. And I had staked my claim with the uh, Portland Trailblazers. I was just hoping they were going to win that series. And in game six, they were up by 15 points going into the fourth quarter. I thought, here we go, game seven, it's on its way. Michael Jordan went to the bench because he wasn't playing very well, and some guy nobody had ever heard of came in the game and decided to have the best game of his life. Well, the Chicago Bulls won that game six, and the Portland Trailblazers went home and lost the NBA Finals, and as a fifth grade little boy, I was crying in our living room downstairs. I'm just kidding. I'm all right. And so I remember that, and I remember years later hearing the story that, um, you know, the Portland Trailblazers are from a city with no NFL team, no baseball team, no hockey team. It was just the Blazers. And Rick Adelman, their coach, described what it was like to get off the plane at 3 a.m., hanging their heads low because they'd just lost game six in a heartbreaking fashion. They'd lost the NBA finals. All their hopes were not to be realized. But at 3 a.m., as they got off the plane, they began to hear cheers, and as they looked up, there were thousands of people from Portland who'd come out to celebrate and to cheer them on for all the work that they'd done, even in losing. You know, the rejoicing of people is a great blessing. As Epaphroditus is going to go back, Paul says, rejoice, and not only rejoice, he goes on to say this, uh, so receive them in the Lord with all joy and honor such men honor such men. Recognize what he's done and honor him. You know, I, th I think now we're in a, a better place perhaps in some ways than we were some years back, just a few years ago, because I think maybe the, the situation we find ourselves in in the world and otherwise with, with what the last few years have meant, it's been a, made us less likely to put people that we've never met up on a pedestal. 
and to say, boy, that's a great person right there. This, if I can, you know, here's who the greatest person or the greatest people, maybe he's a politician, maybe he's a pastor, maybe he's a, a successful person in some way, shape, or form, whoever it might be, if we're not careful, we can honor people that we've never met, that we don't know, and we sort of have this mindset of that's what a great person is. The Apostle Paul says, you know what? For a background person who laid his own life on the line for the sake of the gospel, honor this guy. Honor what he's done. You know, all around this room today, many of us are here because there are Epaphroditus's in our life, or there have been in our life, who are the reason that we came to know Christ. They're the reason that we grew in Christ. They were people who served in children's classes and in preschool classes, in Sunday school classes. They were people who cared for us when nobody else knew that we needed it. God used them in our life. We could go through a thousand scenarios this morning of ways that God has used unpopular background people in your life to make all the difference. And so before we honor those who we've never met or we've just seen on a stage or we just think they do this great or that great, don't forget the background people who have laid their lives down so that you might know and grow in Christ. So for the Epaphroditus and the Timothys, for no doubt many of you this morning as, as Green Street Baptist Church has a long history, and for some of you in here, you're probably thinking even of folks that you say, you know what, this church wouldn't be in the shape that it's in, and it wouldn't have what it has, and it wouldn't be able to do what it does if it wasn't for the faithfulness of this person, and that person, and that person, and perhaps nobody knows their name. But you know, God knows. And it's Epaphroditus's and it's Timothy's who are the backbone and the skeletal structure of a church. So I want to invite you today, even before we begin to close in just a moment, to begin thinking in your own life and in your own heart who those folks are. Are you able to still thank any of them? Are you able to affirm and encourage the work that they might be tired and discouraged in? Are you able to appreciate what they've done? Some years ago, there was a wealthy English family who threw a party. They had a number of young children to come over to play with their son, and they went swimming in a pond that was there on the grounds of their home. And these children went unsupervised. They didn't think too much about it, but one of the children, who was quite small, went into deep water and was drowning. I think we've got a picture of this little boy here. As he was drowning, there was a gardener that was on the facility who heard the cries of the other children as they weren't able to help him, and this gardener ran over, jumped in the water, and swam down until he was able to get this young boy out. And so coughing and spluttering, this little boy was able to be taken back to the shore, and he was okay. And as the parents came and learned what had happened, and as they talked to the gardener, they said, please, can we do something for you to say thank you? And he, of course, said the things that you would expect. Oh, no, 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 I was just there. Anybody would do what I've done, and I would do the same, you know, for my own son, and anybody would have done all this kind of thing. And the parents insisted. They said, no, please, you know, we've been blessed with a lot of means. What can we do to say thank you for saving our son's life? And finally, the gardener mentioned something that had been on his mind for some time, and he said, I do wish that my son could go to college someday and become a doctor. The parents said, well, we'll gladly pay his way. College was cheaper back then. It was some years later that the little boy who was rescued that day 
was the Prime Minister of England. You might recognize his picture here. A man named Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill found himself not only embroiled as the leader of the Allied cause in the Second World War and some of the darkest days that would come, but he found himself at one point stricken with pneumonia, and it was unclear whether he was going to live. Greatly concerned, the King of England at the time summoned the best physician who could be found to the bedside of the ailing leader, and that doctor was a man named Sir Alexander Fleming. He was the developer of penicillin. So the father of the modern antibiotic, uh, essentially, movement. And he was also the son of that gardener who had saved Winston from drowning as a boy. Winston Churchill said, as only he could, something to this effect, rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. The response of a gardener at a children's party initiated the modern medicine and antibiotic movement and enabled the leader of the Allied cause in the Second World War to be there. You and I never know the background things where when we are faithful, God can use them for His glory and His purposes. And most of us who are in here owe the spiritual gardeners in our life much more than those who would stand on a stage or somehow receive acclaim. And so would you hear the words of the Apostle Paul and not only be thankful for those in your life who have been the Timothys and been the Epaphroditus's, but will we seek the Lord together to say, Lord, would you help me to have a selfless concern for my neighbor and my brothers and sisters? Lord, would you help me through the pathway of sacrifice to show love and concern for others, and will you use that for your glory and your purposes? You know, there was one who, whose ultimate sacrifice paved the way for you and I to have life. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the great truth that the Lord Jesus is the one who has laid down his life on our behalf so that we might live, and in his rising again, we have found hope of eternity with him and rescue from the punishment that we deserved. I would call you to the understanding that there is one who has made the ultimate sacrifice on your behalf, not only in death, but in carrying your and my sins to Calvary to pay the punishment that we deserved. And all that separates you from him today is trusting in what he's done and taking his hand. If you're here today and the Lord's encouraging your heart to continue in an area of ministry and service and in an area of faithfulness and relationship. Through the words of the Apostle Paul, may you be encouraged and may the light and the hope of the gospel continue to drive us forward towards a loving concern and a faithful service. Father, we thank you for the hope that is in you. We thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ who has gone before us and sacrificed in our place. And so, Lord, would you help us not only to honor those in our life who are selfless and faithful and have concern, but, Lord, would you help us to be more and more like Jesus and to see those fruits more and more in our lives as well. And so, Lord, if there are those who need to surrender in some area of their life today, If there are those who need to receive the gift of salvation that's only given in belief and trust in the Lord Jesus, if there are those who need to encourage and affirm 
and thank the Epaphroditus's and the Timothy's in their life. Lord, however you're challenging our own hearts through your word, Lord, would you now even continue to, to urge us that way and to help us to respond. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.